If you and I are going to rightly understand the full message of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, from the Old Testament to the New, we have to have a solid doctrine of man. A solid doctrine of man, a well-thought-out doctrine of man. Here's what I mean by that. We have to know, as men and women, who we truly are. And that's both sides of the ledger. On the one hand, gloriously created in the image of God, and on the other hand, entirely fallen. We have to grasp the full weight of both of those things, our dignity on the one hand and our depravity on the other. Michael Horton, who's one of my favorite theologians, he's fond of using a term, and it sounds contradictory at first, but it's actually really accurate. He says, human beings are glorious traitors. Stir on that for a little bit. Romans 1 tells us that natural man will not honor God and not give thanks to him. Because to honor God, to be grateful to him, is to acknowledge dependence on him, and our fallen hearts simply don't want to do that. We really don't want to reflect God's glory. We want to possess his glory so that we can be the Lord of our own lives. That is the state of natural man and natural woman. And we ought to know that. Yes, gloriously created in his image, but also fully fallen and depraved. Now, there's a reason why I start with that this morning. Some of you are like, wait, are we back in Romans? Uh, no, I start with that this morning for this reason. Today, we're diving into the first of the 12 minor prophets of Israel and that means we're going way back in time, back to the 9th century B.C. That is a, a long, long time ago. And so you might be tempted to say in your mind, well, what does this have to do with me? Why should I care? How is this going to apply to me as a 21st century Christian? Two things I would say in response to that. First, as I shared last Sunday, remember that the Hebrew Scriptures are the root of our new covenant faith in Christ. The Hebrew Scriptures matter. We ought to study them, we ought to know them, and again, Romans 11 says that we, Gentiles, have been grafted into the rich olive tree of Israel with all of its covenants and promises, so this is our story. Jewish history is our spiritual story. But secondly, and more importantly for us this morning, know this, fallen human beings in the 9th century BC are the same in many ways as fallen human beings in the 21st century AD. Human nature hasn't changed. Now, it's obviously culture has changed and tools have changed and technology has changed. What hasn't changed over all those years is the human heart. So a stonemason living in Lachish in 850 BC wanted many of the same things that you and I want today. We want comfort, happiness, safety, financial stability, a loving family, and more. And that same stonemason living in 850 B.C. and a person living today, we also struggle with the same things. We struggle with pride and fear and greed and lust and bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and so many more things. So here's the point. Human dignity and human fallenness are timeless. So as we read things that go way back in time, we can see in the ancient Israelites Many of the same things that we are wrestling with today. So as we study these ancient books from an age and a culture where we say, I'm not sure I can really identify or connect with what's going on here, don't slough it off as impractical. I know that God has something for us in each one of the books that we're going to look at. Now let me try to set our study uh, today in the context. We're looking at the book of Obadiah, and you can go there if you want, if you can find it. 
because it's so short, 21 verses, uh, we're going to do a ton of historical background, but you can turn there if you want. Look for that section in your Bible that's the minor prophets. They're all lumped together right after the major prophets. You've got, I always, th- I always think in my mind, Hojo, it starts Hojo, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. So it's the fourth of the minor prophets in there. But we need to do a whole bunch of background work so that we can understand it. If you read it this week, and maybe you, you took my instruction to heart, you said, I'm going to read it this week, and you looked at it and said, what is going on here? If that was you, that's fine. We're going to work through it together. The backdrop of Obadiah is the blood feud that began between two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, around the year 2000 B.C. And it continued for generations among their descendants. Two nations, two rival nations, one we call Israel and the other we call Edom. Now, I don't have time this morning to recap the whole story of, of Jacob and Esau. It's, it's actually quite interesting, so if you're unfamiliar with it, Just write down Genesis 25 to 27, and in your study this week, take a look at it. It's a fascinating story. But the key to understanding the rivalry between these two brothers and their descendants is to understand what the Lord said to their mother, Rebecca, back in Genesis 25, while she was pregnant. Here's what the Lord said to her. Two nations are in your womb, and the two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And then the text continues. When her time came to give birth, there was indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking. No comment there. As a pale reddish-looking guy. (laughs) Covered with hair like a fur coat. And they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping, it's, I love this, grasping Esau's heel with his hand, so he was named Jacob. Now, who's the older brother? The one that came out first, Esau. So Esau, which is Esav in Hebrew, it means hairy. And, and the Israelites were really good at this. They used very practical names. <laughs> Boom, hairy. All right. Jacob, Yaakov in Hebrew, is a bit tricky. It literally means what you read there in The birth story, one who grasps at the heel, but the meaning behind that basically is a supplanter, one who overthrows, and that's the name that they gave to Jacob. Of course, that's going to be his track record in life, isn't it? He will grasp at everything that he possibly can, trying always to achieve things in his own strength rather than relying upon the promises of God. But among the twins, he, Jacob, is the quieter one. He is the clever one. He is the schemer. He is mom's favorite, and he enjoys staying around the tent. Esau couldn't be more different. He's the favorite of his father, Isaac. He's the tough guy. He's the hunter. He's ruddy, and he's hairy. He's an outdoorsman. No doubt he had a great hipster beard, right? He just had a big old beard, right? You can picture him. But most of all, the thing to know about Esau is that he's a man of the flesh, Of the two, he is a man of the flesh, and that becomes very important. Uh, We see later on in in Genesis 25 how how Esau comes in in, in from the field. He's been hunting all day, and he's exhausted. And there's Jacob in the tent doing what? He's stirring a pot of delicious-smelling reddish, by the way, reddish stew. So red is a theme that runs throughout this, this reddish stew. And so Esau demands to have some of it, and clever Jacob sees an opening, and he says, no problem, brother. 
But first, sell me your birthright. Give me that birthright that you have as the older son. And Esau, being a, a knuckle-dragger, uh, a man of the flesh, he says, look, I'm about to physically die here, so what good is a birthright? And he agrees. He's a man of the flesh. Later in chapter 27, we see Father Isaac in the final days of his life, and he's prepared to lay his covenant blessing on the older son, his favorite son Esau. But while Esau's out in the field doing his manly thing, Jacob conspires with his mom. He is a mama's boy, isn't he? Conspires with his mother to deceive his dad and to steal the blessing. Now, we know the story. Isaac is nearly blind at this point, so Jacob puts on a disguise. He puts goat skins on his hands and his neck in order to smell and to feel like Esau. Love that picture. And Jacob enters Isaac's tent, and he fools, in, in, fools him into giving him the blessing. Clever, scheming Jacob. And how did Esau receive that news? How would you receive that news? That you've lost out on your blessing because of your deceptive brother. He reacts as a man of the flesh. He screams and he weeps and he pleads with his father for another blessing. And when it becomes clear that that's not possible, that he's not getting a blessing, what does Esau do? He promises to kill his brother. He's a man of the flesh. And Isaac, distraught over his son's pain, prophesies over him and says to Esau, Behold, your dwelling place will be away from the richness of the land. Hmm. Away from the dew of the sky above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you rebel, you will break his yoke from your neck. So here's a summary of what the prophecy about Esau is and how it's going to end up playing out. First, one people, one of the twins, Israel, will be stronger than the other. That's Edom. By the way, Edom means red in Hebrew. So you get the theme here. Israel will be stronger than Edom. Second, the older Esau will serve the younger Jacob, and that will be true in later generations as Israel would subjugate the nation of Edom. Third, Esau and his descendants will be forced away from the richness of God's promised land, out of the boundaries of Israel to a dry and rugged place where there's no dew. And fourth, Edom would have to wield the sword to establish their kingdom, and they would use that sword to continually be in rebellion against the nation of Israel. That's the prophecy, and it's all going to come true. And, and what happens to Esau next? Well, again, he's a man of the flesh. So what does he do? He, he races out of the promised land, and he ignores all of God's warnings concerning spiritual purity, and he marries three women, all of them pagan, two Canaanites and an Arab woman, and he begins to produce his own line of descendants. And he settles in a region of rugged mountains to the southeast of Israel between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba, Genesis 36 eight gives us the name of this place. It says, Esau lived in the mountains of Seir. What is that? Well, that gives us a chance to look at a map. Man, you got weeks and weeks of maps coming up. All right, so here's a, here's a picture of the divided kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom is green, that's Israel. The purple is the southern kingdom of Judah. The blue dot is Jerusalem, very good. And that black outlined area is the land of, of Edom. We'll come back to that in a second. But you can see where Esau fled to out of the promised land and down into this region called Edom. Now, what does it look like? Barren and rocky 
And interestingly, red sandstone, red again, right? This is where Esau settles. It is an incredibly rugged and dry place. Some more pictures. You can see the size of some of the mountains. By the way, this is in, in the land of Jordan today, across the border from Israel. Later on, by the way, you guys have heard of Petra, very famous city where the, the, these in, incredibly exquisite uh, uh, buildings, designs have been literally built out of the, the, the sandstone and these deep caves and these massive rooms. The Edomites didn't do this. It's the next civilization that, that comes into the land that does this. But they were able to make a life in caves in, in this land of Mount Seir. Uh, by the way, one last picture. This is actually from uh, our trip to Israel three years ago. And, and this is the, the other side of the border in Israel in the Negev Desert. This is an area known as the Timna Valley where these are called Solomon's Pillars. And I give it to you so that you can see how intimidating. See the red box? That's our group starting to walk into the, into the frame. How big these rock formations are in this part of the world. Now, oh, let me, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Now, what do we know uh, about the later generations of Esau and the Edomite people? The answer is not much, and here's why. None of their writings or records have survived. We literally have nothing today written by the Edomites. So we're dependent upon what other people said about them, the surrounding nations, and particularly the Egyptians who wrote a lot of things out and spoke of the Edomites because they bumped into them quite often. And they described the Edomites as a very crude people and a very warlike people, very aggressive in the defense of their land and, and frankly, not to be taken lightly. One of the things that you can tell for sure by looking at the pictures is they would have lacked natural resources. They would have had to have become masters in water collection and, and in somehow building a, a system that would allow the agriculture to grow in the desert. Not impossible, but very, very challenging. And so what historians have gathered is that Edom really survived because of two things. Number one, they had this incredibly defensible kingdom. Think about this for a second. If your army is living in caves, you know, hundreds of feet up in the air, how difficult, how many resources would your army... First, you've got to get your army into the desert, lacking water, and you've got to sustain them. But then to fight from the valley floor up with an army above you shooting down at you, and in very tight corridors where a large army could get caught in a bottleneck and be defeated, it is a highly defensible position. And so the Edomites counted on that. And then the second thing, and I'll bring the map back up for this. The second thing is, you see that in the land of Edom, you see that yellow dot there. That's their capital city known as Basra. Later it would be, be moved to Petra. But in Basra, you can see that red line going through it. Edom is located right on a trade route called the King's Highway. And so this is how they built and maintained an economy. They would collect taxes for any people that would travel down the King's Highway. They would collect taxes or tolls, and they would use their army to uh, enforce that. And they would trade with all these nations that were coming down. And, and by the way, if, if, a, if a group were coming south down the King's Highway, where do you think they were headed? To Egypt, where so many resources were. So everybody that came through paid taxes and traded with the Edomites, and this is how they basically survived. Now, go back in your mind to Isaac's prophecy over Esau. You will live by the sword of rebellion against your brother Jacob. And that came true over and over again. If you run through the Old Testament, you find, first of all, uh, 500 years after Esau settled in this place we call Seir, Israel will come into its very first conflict with the Edomites, and it's described in Numbers chapter 20. 
After the Exodus, Moses is now leading the Israelites up through what we call the wilderness of Zin. He is south of the land of Edom, but he wants to travel through the territory of Edom. So he sends a messenger ahead of him and asks the king of Edom for permission to come into his land, just to, to pass through it. And it's interesting, if you read the text in Numbers 20, Moses refers to the, kingdom of Edom, the king of Edom as brother. He fall, even 500 years later, he falls back on this shared Jewish bloodline and says, brother, we're coming through. We want, we want no, we're not trying to hurt anybody. We're not trying to take any resources. We just want to pass through. And what does Edom say? Absolutely not. They, in fact, they react with hostility. Not only shall you not pass, but they bring their army out and threaten Moses and the Israelites with the sword. It's a shocking way to treat a peaceful group of travelers who have no intention to hurt anybody. We also know that from the books of Samuel that there were several battles between the two kingdoms. Saul went to war against the Edomites. He also went to war against the Amalekites who were related to Edom through one of Esau's grandsons, Amalek. So both the Edomites and the Amalekites became enemies of Israel. Finally, it was King David in 2 Samuel 8 who subjugates Edom. He goes to war with them and subjugates them 2 Samuel 8 says this, David made a reputation for himself when he returned from striking down, get this, 18,000 Edomites in the Salt Valley. David was a mighty warrior. 18,000 Edomites killed in the Salt Valley. And it says he, David, placed garrisons throughout Edom and all the Edomites were subject to David. But that doesn't mean that they just rolled over. Later on, we find out they continue to rise and to rebel against Israel during the divided kingdom period, first in the days of King Jehoshaphat, and then in the days of King Jehoram of Judah. And that means we're getting closer now to the backdrop of the book of Obadiah. Trust me, all of this is going to come, you trust me? All going to come into focus as we go along. Okay, so this is going to bring us back to, now I, we looked at this timeline last week, and you're probably going to see it every week, just so that you never forget. But what I want you to see here, this is just a, a simple look at the key dates in Israel's history, beginning in 2100 BC, about the time of Abraham, coming down into the conquest period, Joshua and Judges, to the monarchy in 1050. Who are the great kings of Israel? Three of them. Saul, David, Solomon, that's the monarchy period. And then in 930, you see there, 930, the kingdom divides into two. And we have two distinct kingdoms. In the north, we have Israel. In the south, we have Judah. Both of them have kings. In 722, the northern kingdom disappears because the Assyrians conquer it and scatter the people. And now we're down to one kingdom, the solitary kingdom, okay? And that's Judah. And then Judah in 586, key dates, 586 is then conquered by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, and they're carried into exile. Now, they're in exile in Babylon for a generation. They come back to the land, rebuild their lives, their city, their temple, and we have what's called the post-exile kingdom. And we're going to look at prophets in all three of these last ones. Divided kingdom, solitary kingdom, post-exile kingdom. We'll look at minor prophets that operated in all three of those periods. Today, we're zooming into the one you see their divided kingdom, 930 to 722. So we're, we're now zooming in on that timeline to this particular timeline, the timeline of the kings. So again, the northern kingdom is Israel. And it's ruled in 930 by a very strong and pragmatic but wicked king by the name of Jeroboam I. See him there? Yeah? Good. 
And the southern kingdom, known as Judah, is ruled by this very foolish and immature king, the son of Solomon. His name is Rehoboam. Now, how many good godly kings did the northern kingdom have in its history? Zero. This is the thing you can always know. Every king up to 722 when they're conquered by Assyria, zero godly kings. Were there good kings in the south in Judah? There were. And the redeeming news here is that within 20 years of knucklehead Rehoboam, we have two godly kings that come into power in Judah, Asa and Jehoshaphat. Both of them are said to have walked faithfully with the Lord as their father David had. Okay, remember, the southern kingdom of Judah is the messianic line of David. Okay? This was also a time, Asa and Jehoshaphat, where two very important non-writing prophets are operating, Elijah and later Elisha. And what is Elijah's main focus? Everybody know the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? What's, what's, who, which king is Elijah's main focus? King Ahab in the north. See him there? King Ahab and Elijah have this incredible uh, relationship. <laughs> it's not a good one between the two of them. So that's, what, that's what's going on there. Now, Jehoshaphat down in Judah, he's a busy warrior in his day. He goes to war against Edom and Moab and Ammon and the Philistines and the Arabs. And God is with him in every battle. He's a very godly, very successful king. But that is not the case with his son. His son is really our focus for this morning. His name is Jehoram. See him there? He comes to power in 848 at the age of 32, and he is the worst. And I don't say that lightly because there's a lot of bad kings. He does two things right out of the gate as he gets to power. Remember, his dad's this godly king. I don't know what happened here. But Jehoram does two things. First of all, he decides he wants to secure an alliance with Israel in the north. So he marries the daughter of Ahab. Oh boy. Her name is Athaliah. She's a nightmare. Who's her mother? Jezebel. So he marries into the family of Ahab and Jezebel in order to... He's a man of the flesh. To secure an alliance with the northern kingdom. Jezebel is a priestess of Baal. She has trained her daughter. And so now that wickedness that was present in in Israel that Elijah has been speaking against is now traveling south into Judah and infecting the people in the south. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does, he goes on a murderous rampage of his own family. Now, this is not uncommon in the ancient world, but he kills every one of his younger brothers and their kids. Any prince, anybody who might at some point rise up to challenge his power, he wipes them out in one fell swoop. So this is a really bad guy. 2 Chronicles 21 says that on top of that, Jehoram built false worship sites in the hills of Judah, and he caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to prostitute themselves, leading all of Judah astray. Now, it wasn't just the Lord who looked down and saw how paranoid and weak and awful Jehoram was, the surrounding nations realized it too. And what do surrounding nations do when they see weakness? They rebel. Edom rebels against Jehoram in this day and defeats Jehoram in battle, almost kills him, but they win their independence. And that causes other kingdoms in the area to rebel as well. And in the midst of this chaos, Elijah, who has been focused all up on Ahab in the north, turns his attention to Jehoram, and you'll find this in 2 Chronicles 21. He speaks a prophecy 
over Jehoram. And basically, he says two things. He says, first of all, because of your wickedness, the Lord will bring a calamity against you that will strike at three things, your nation, your family, and your possessions. And if that's not bad enough, second, you will be stricken with a painful disease of your bowels that will slowly take your life. Lovely. So Jehoram is king at the time of Obadiah. Very important to understand. Now, here's the thing about the book of Obadiah. It's only 21 verses, and we don't know a whole lot about what's going on from the text itself. There's, there's really only two things we can know if we read the, the actual text. Two things we can know. Number one, it's a judgment against Edom. That's clear. And secondly, it's somehow connected to an attack on Jerusalem. That's really all we can tell from the 21 verses of Obadiah. Now, Jerusalem has been attacked and, and plundered many times in history. So in order to figure out what's going on, Bible scholars have to look at all, this, all these times that Jerusalem was attacked and say which one fits the history and the context best. And I believe it's a particular attack that happened during the reign of King Jehoram. And I'm going to give you the text from it, 2 Chronicles 21, 16 and 17. It says this, the Philistines and the Arabs, so two distinct people groups come together. The Philistines and the Arabs who lived near the Cushites attacked Jehoram. So they went to war against Judah and they invaded it and they carried off all the possessions found in the king's palace and also his sons and wives. Not a son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. So this is a fulfillment of what Elijah had prophesied, right? Calamity is coming, Jehoram, because of your wickedness, and it will strike at your nation, your family, and your possessions. So this confederacy of Philistines, okay, the Philistines come from the west of Judah, and Arabs coming up from the land of the Cushites, which is today modern-day Sudan, down in Africa, they come rolling in, they create two fronts that Judah has to fight on, and they overwhelm the land. They roll right up to Jerusalem, right to the king's palace. And, and my guess is, we don't know this, that Jehoram fled in fear, but they captured his wives, and they captured his sons, and they plundered the king's palace. This is a tragic and embarrassing story in the history of Judah. So what happened to uh, good old Jehoram? Well, he survives this attack only to contract the illness that Elijah had prophesied. 2 Chronicles 21 says, The Lord afflicted him, afflicted him in his intestines with an incurable disease and two years of suffering. In the year 841, the Bible says, I love the way the Bible says, he, said, he died to no one's regret. <laughs> right? And it says that they didn't even bury him in the tombs of the king. The guy's such a disgrace. Because he did all these things, these wicked things, and and he, and he didn't even have the defenses of Judah up. The Philistines and the Arabs just plundered him. He's a mess. So that's a ton of background, right? But now that you hear all that, you're going to understand Obadiah. So do you still have it open? Okay. Here we go. we read all 21 verses. This is the only time we're going to get to read an entire book. <laughs> and we'll, we'll do some commentary on it as we go along. But I think you're going to see what's happening. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Well, who's Obadiah? Who's this guy? Well, the challenge is we don't exactly know because Obadiah is a very common name. In Hebrew, it means servant of Yahweh. 
Very common name. And there's at least a dozen Obadiahs in the Old Testament. Now, there is one that makes the most sense, if you want to write this down. 2 Chronicles 17.7 says that Jehoshaphat sent five of his officials to teach in the cities of Judah. And one of those names is Obadiah. My guess is that's the guy here. If that's our prophet, what do we know about him? That he's at least, at the very least, a qualified teacher of the law sent out by the king. Let's keep going. Thus says the Lord God concerning who? Edom. Okay, remember all that background with Jacob and Esau. We have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. Behold, I, the Lord, will make you small or insignificant among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance or pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down? Okay, remember the clefts of the rock. We looked at the pictures. Who will bring me down? So the Edomites don't have a lot to be proud of, but what they are proud of, you know, they boast about it. They're living in this great area of natural fortifications that strength. They boast, who's going to bring us down? What army can come into this valley and take us down? But look at God's response. Though you build high, verse 4, Though you soar like the eagle, it says, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Now, there's some interesting language in this, some parallels here. It's really, the language here is reminiscent of the fall of Satan that we read about in Isaiah 14. Listen to what Isaiah 14 says. But you, Satan, said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But God declares this about Satan. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning. You have been cut down to the earth. You will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Here's why I share that with you guys. Edom, in many ways, represents the spirit of rebellion, the spirit of Satan, the spirit of Antichrist. We see this woven throughout the scriptures. Edom represents all of those things. Esau, if we go back to our little study in Genesis 3, Esau is like the serpent nipping at the heels of Jacob. But God's promise is that ultimately Esau's head will be crushed. And that the language here in the Old Testament juxtaposes these two kingdoms of Esau and Jacob. And one represents the spirit of Antichrist. Let's keep going. Verse 5. If thieves came to you, Edom, if robbers or marauders came by night, oh, how will you be ruined? Would they not steal only until they had had enough? If grape gatherers or grape pickers came to you, would they not leave at least some gleanings? In other words, if human marauders came to you, Edom, and they attacked you, they'd leave a few things for you. They wouldn't take everything. But since I, the Lord, will bring you down, you will be left with absolutely Nothing. Verse 6. Oh, how Esau will be ransacked or pillaged and his hidden treasures searched out. Guess what? When you have a cave structure, you can hide a lot of things. God says, you can't hide anything from me. Those things that you, you think you've hidden away, those things of value, I will search them out. Verse 7. All the men allied with you will send or drive you forth to the border and the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There is no understanding in him. 
So it seems that the Edomites boasted in their alliances with other nations, in their, in their trading partners. It was their means of survival and a source of strength for them. But God here says, you have no idea what's coming. These people that you trust, these other nations that you have alliances with, they're going to set a trap for you, and they will bring you down in the day of ambush. We're going to see how that comes true. Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Then your mighty men, your warriors, will be dismayed, O Taman. Now, Taman is a, a reference to a particular tribe within Edom. It's the name of one of Esau's grandsons. So that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. So if you break up Obadiah into three sections, that's what I call the ruin section. Here's what's going to happen to you. Okay? Utter devastation and ruin. Now, second section. Here is the reason behind that. God's going to lay out the reason behind their ruin, verses 10 to 14. Because of violence to your brother Jacob. That's why. The reference there to Esau's Jewish bloodline through Isaac, your brother. And what else is looming in the background? Cain and Abel. Violence done to your brother. The spirit of Cain and Abel here. And because of your sin against Jacob, Obadiah goes on to say in verse 10, you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. You've betrayed your brother. You've done violence to him. And so I will repay, says the Lord. Now in verses 11 to 14, Obadiah gives us detail about exactly how Edom betrayed Israel. As these Philistines and these Arabs were coming to attack Jerusalem, here's what they did. Verse 11, on that day you stood aloof. You stood with indifference as your brothers were being attacked. It says, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you too were as one of them. You acted just like them rather than defending your brother. Verse 12, do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast or do not mock them in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people on the day of their disaster. Yes, you, Edom, do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. Do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives and do not imprison or hand over their survivors in the day of distress. Here's what's happening. Obadiah is describing for us a progression of sin, a progression of sin against Jacob. First of all, they just stood aloof. As all of this went down, I, I, here's what I picture. I, I can't prove this, but Edom has its spies. They see the, the Arabs coming through their territory. They know what's going on. They, they knew where they were headed, and they stood back, indifferent. They didn't warn their brother. They didn't go to defend him. They let him pass. God witnessed the indifference of Edom to the suffering of his people, Jacob. Second thing, Edomites gloated. When Jerusalem was destroyed, they rejoiced over it. They celebrated it. I'm guessing they said, you know what? Those guys deserve it. Third, at least some of the Edomites participated in looting the city. By the way, this is an interesting phenomenon. We see it happening today, right? Chaos erupts, and what do people do? They get like this weird mob mentality, and they will do things that they would normally not do because everybody's doing it. And so they jump in with these pagans, and they loot Jerusalem alongside the Philistines 
and the Arabs. And finally, the Edomites give aid and comfort to the enemy. Here's the ultimate betrayal. What, what appears to have happened here is the Edomites then what they did was for all the Israelites that were fleeing to the south to get away from this destruction, they set up blockades. And they either cut them down, killed them, or they captured them and they gave them back to the Philistines and Arabs to be slaves. What a betrayal. And it's a horrific scene, isn't it? This is why God is upset. Now, final section. We've seen ruin and reason and just to keep the alliteration going, here's the result. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. Now, I'm going to resist getting into detail about the day of the Lord because we're going to see it all through the prophets. And next week in Joel, we'll talk a lot about this. But for now, know that when you see day of the Lord, it's connected to the coming messianic kingdom. It's a day when God will punish his enemies and save his people. But here, Obadiah is stressing the imminence of this day. He's saying, look, God is near and he brings his vengeance against the sin and betrayal of Edom. Verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Guys, this is the principle we call lex talionis. It comes straight from the, the law of Moses, an eye for an eye. As you've done, it'll be done to you. You want to you wanna sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. Eye for an eye, it will happen to you. Verse 16, because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow, or they will gulp it down and become as if they had never existed. Throughout the scriptures, we see this idea of drinking as a, as a symbol for God's judgment. Remember when Jesus was in the garden and his disciples were, were there with him and he said to them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? That's the picture we have here. Here in Obadiah, the enemies of God will one day gulp down a full cup of God's wrath. And who will be able to stand on that day? Who will stand in the face of God's wrath? Verse 17. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. Where's Mount Zion? In Jerusalem, right? It's the original part of the city that David conquered in the year 1000, Mount Zion. On Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. So when that day comes, there will be a significant group of people, a, a believing remnant of Jews who will be safe. It says it will, Mount Zion will be holy. Why will Mount Zion be holy in that day? Because God himself will return. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, will return and he will rule from Mount Zion. He will be in Jerusalem. That's why the hill is holy. That's what's being talked about here. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. The house of Jacob will be a blazing fire. And the house of Joseph, a burning flame. But the house of Esau will be a stubble. And they, Jacob, will set them, Esau, on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken." Now what follows is a description then of how this believing remnant that's safe on Mount Zion will then spread out from Jerusalem and possess all that God has promised them. Look at it, verse 19. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. And those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria to the north. And Benjamin will possess Gilead to the northeast. 
And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev, all of the wilderness in the south. Now, final verse, very important, verse 21. The deliverers or saviors will ascend Mount Zion to judge or to rule over the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. In the day of the Lord, believing Israel... Jews who will have turned to Christ at his return, they will be the ones who will escape the wrath of God. They will ascend to Mount Zion, and from there they will judge the nations and rule with Christ. Do you remember what Paul wrote in Romans 11, just to connect it with the New Testament concerning the end of days? He said, and so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Obadiah and Paul in Romans? Are you kidding? So these Jewish disciples of Yeshua will finally enter into the fullness of the promises given to them. They're going to have their land, right? They're going to have their kingdom, and they will have their throne, and finally, finally, they will have their Davidic ruler sitting on that throne for all eternity. Wow. Wow. Man, Obadiah packs a punch, doesn't it? It's short, but it packs a punch. So what's the PS then on Edom? What's the, what's the end of the story? Did all the prophecies come true? That's a silly question, isn't it? Edom never repented of their sin in the ninth century. In fact, they repeated it again about 300 years later. We talked about how Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and they torched Jerusalem and they leveled the temple and they captured all the... Judahites and took them into exile, the, the greatest tragedy in the history of all, the promised land. In that day, once again, scripture tells us that the Edomites allied themselves with Nebuchadnezzar. And they came in and they took part in plundering the city of Jerusalem. And they rejoiced at the destruction of their brother Jacob. They never got it. Men and women of the flesh. And so God has a seething and righteous anger towards Edom. All through scripture, not just in Obadiah, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, all speak oracles of judgment upon the descendants of Esau. By the way, you remember back in Romans 9 when we read this really difficult verse in Romans 9. Paul quotes the Old Testament. He says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I have hated. Remember that from Romans 9? Do you understand it more now? Do you understand the background of that? That verse which so rocks our world, like, I don't understand how God could do this. Now we see the full picture, right? By the way, that quote comes from Malachi. Here's what Malachi wrote. I have loved Jacob, and I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. That's how God feels about Edom. And the prophecy of Obadiah concerning Edom's destruction, it comes true in a, in a series of stages. This is one of the funniest things. I talked about how the allies of Edom would turn against them. Just three years after Nebuchadnezzar levels Jerusalem, he decides, I'm going to go attack Egypt. What's between him and Egypt? Edom. So Nebuchadnezzar goes and squashes the Edomites, his former ally, just for fun. Why not? He's on the trade route, and he crushes the Edomite army. In the 5th century B.C., the Nabataeans, an Arab tribe, moved from 
what we call Arabia today, and they move west, and, and they also defeat the Edomites in battle, and they push them, actually push them west into southern Palestine. They are, all of the, the, the home and their rocks, they're pushed into what we call the Negev in southern Palestine. In the late second century BC then, one of the Hasmonean kings, a Jewish king, says enough of these people down here in the south. He goes down, he defeats the Edomites, and from that point forward, their name disappears from the historical record. His name is John Hyrcanus. He's a Hasmonean king. He goes down, he defeats the Edomites, and he forces them to convert to Judaism at the point of a sword. So they're absorbed into the nation of Judah in the south, and that's going to have repercussions later on. By the way, they, from that point forward, they're known by their Greek name, Idumeans. So Edomites and Idumeans are the same thing. And then the final death knell, the full destruction of Edom, according to the prophecy, comes at the hands of who else? The Romans. In the first century AD, in around the year 70, the Romans obliterate the Idumeans, the Edomites, and they're wiped off the face of the earth. And at that point, Obadiah's prophecy is fulfilled, Edom will be cut off forever. God's faithful to his word, isn't he? He has a righteous anger. He has wrath for the enemies of his people, and he's faithful to carry it out. Now, one final historical note before we do some application, and this goes back to the spirit of Antichrist that we find in Edom. In the first century uh, AD, when Rome is beginning to flex its muscles in Palestine, there's one very resourceful politician, a man who has Edomite blood running through him, who befriends a man named Julius Caesar. And he becomes an ally to Julius Caesar. And his name is Antipater the Idumean. And he becomes the very first Roman procurator over Judea. That's the same office that later Pontius Pilate will fill. Who is Antipater's son? Herod the Great. Herod is an Idumean. Because John Hyrcanus went down and conquered the Idumeans and forced them to convert to Judaism and brought them into the nation, Herod now has a foothold to become king of the Jews later on. God was displeased with John Hyrcanus, and this is how the Jews suffered later on, to have an Edomite as their king. Herod the Great becomes king of the Jews in 37 B.C., he is half Edomite, half Arab. And that tells us why Herod was not and never could have been loved by his Jewish subjects. Half Arab, half Edomite. Which side of that do you think the Jews focused on? They hated him because he was a descendant of Esau. Now, is that enough history for you guys? <laughs> That's a lot. But hopefully that rounds it out for you. And, and this is just the beginning. We're going to get into other books, and the pieces of the puzzles are going to start together. But I, I promise you some practical applications. So let's do that before we run. I know I'm short on time. But I started out this morning by reminding you of this important fact. Human nature hasn't changed from 850 B.C. to today. So are there things that we see in Edom that we can say, ooh, that cuts a little too close to home? Do I... Do I share some of the attributes and the thoughts and things of the heart that the Edomites did? So I've got three warnings that come to us from Obadiah. Number one, you cannot hide from God. Cannot hide from God. Can't hide in the clefts of the rocks. You can't build homes up high and say, nobody sees me. Right? 
Nobody sees me, not even God. Nothing can reach me. Nothing can hurt me up here. I love what the psalmist says. He says, where can I go to escape your spirit, Lord? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there too. Cannot hide from God. If you've deceived yourself into feeling untouchable, this is a warning from Obadiah. God will bring you down. Number two, the principle of sowing and reaping is very, very real. In time, the Edomites discovered this. They sowed violence and betrayal, and they reaped the same in return. Very simple wisdom from Proverbs. He who digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone, it will come back upon him. Are you digging a pit for yourself right now? With sin. If so, how do you expect not to fall in? Reaping and sowing is very, very real. Number three, unchecked pride will always lead to a fall. Unchecked pride will always lead to a fall. Pride is the idolatry of self, isn't it? Look at me. I'm the center of everything. I'm the Lord of my own life. I don't need God. I call the shots. I control my circumstances. I manipulate the people in my life to my benefit. Now, nobody says that out loud, but we do that from within. Pride is at the very center of man's rebellion against God. Always has been. And by the way, pride has an incredibly successful resume, doesn't it? If you think, well, not me, be careful, right? Not me. It's not going to affect me. Look at the resume of pride. Pride was the very thing that brought Satan down to the earth, caused Satan to fall. Pride is the very thing that brought about the original sin of man in the garden. It caused the downfall of everything in the created order. The corruption of everything that you see came as a result of pride. And it continues to stalk and capture human hearts to this day. Pride is the soil in which almost every other sin is cultivated and germinated and grown. Almost everything you can think of in terms of what I struggle with is rooted in pride. And one of the most insidious things about it is how subtle it is, how easy it can deceive us. We look in the mirror and we don't even see our own pride in, until it's too late and we become very secure in ourselves. That was the testimony of Edom. We're going we're to build high in the rocks and we're going to soar like eagles. Who can bring us down? We're in control. We're going to build a kingdom that is so great and so powerful. Nobody can take us down. Not even God himself can touch us up here. But God has declared this from Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Listen to this. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Unchecked pride will bring you down. Three really practical warnings from Obadiah. Now, Listen to this for a second. As I share those warnings, let's make sure that we're applying those things properly. Who is Obadiah warning here? Who's the object of his warning? Edom. The spirit of Esau. The spirit of Cain. The spirit of Antichrist. Everything that stands opposed to the sovereign rule of Yahweh and his Messiah Jesus. That's who Obadiah is warning. So these warnings, the three things you see on the screen there, these are warnings for men and women of the flesh, like Esau. Not those of the Spirit. Here's what I mean by that. If you're here this morning and you haven't bowed your knee to Christ, if you haven't trusted in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, 
It may sound strange through your ears, but if that's you, and you're on the fence, you haven't committed to Christ, you stand this morning with Esau. You stand with Esau, and you stand against Jacob. You stand on the mountain of Esau, not on the mountain of Zion. By the way, there's an incredible contrast there. You stand on the mountains of Esau, not on the mount of Zion. And you stand under the threat of God's fiery wrath that will come on the day of the Lord. If you haven't committed your life to Christ, today is the day of salvation because you stand with Esau. Friends, ultimately, there's only two kingdoms in this world. So choose wisely this day which one you will trust and which one you will serve. You're either going to serve God or yourself. Choose wisely. Now, for those who are here this morning and you know God's Messiah, you abide in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've trusted in him alone, what do these warnings mean for us? Well, we know that our God is holy and just, don't we? That's been the theme this morning. He is holy and just. While he's a terror for Esau, his holiness and his justice are a blessing and a comfort for Jacob. Now, can we hide from God? Can we hide our sin as Christians? No, because God searches us and he knows us, right? He knows us better than we know ourselves. Do we still reap the consequences of our sowing in sin? Yeah, that's part of his fatherly discipline to call us back to himself. Does he still hate our sufficiency and pride? Absolutely. But here's the thing. For those of us who are found in Christ, we worship a God who is gracious and long-suffering for his children. Yeah, these warnings apply, but we've been forgiven. We've been washed clean. And so our God's not a terror for us. Quite the opposite. When we sin against him, he says to us over and over and over again, return to me. Return to me. So you can't hide. Come down out of the clefts of the rock and bring your sin before God. Bring it into the light. Confess it and repent it to him. Return to me, says the Lord, because I love you, because you're my child, because you're washed clean by the blood of Christ. Don't hide it, but bring it to me. Because why? I am faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So we're very different than Esau. Look, if you're standing with Esau this morning, be afraid. Be afraid. Take these warnings to heart. If you're found in Christ, pay attention here, but know that your God is gracious and long-suffering for you. Be encouraged. I'll, I'll close with this. God's justice will ultimately prevail on the great day of the Lord. He promises us that. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, righteous in all your ways and holy in all your works, that is the God that we worship this morning.